Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for your goodness and mercy. Be with us now as we turn our attention to the text. You've ministered to us in the children's story. You've ministered to us in the song service, in the offerings, in the announcements, in the preparation for the uh, October. And we ask now that as we turn our attention to the text, especially today, the book of Judges, uh, illumine our minds and our hearts, we ask in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, and I want to thank Jared for doing a great job last week for orienting us to the book of Judges and taking us through the experience of Deborah and Barak and Ehud. Right, you did a great job, Jared. Uh, Really enjoyed that. Today we're going to talk about the Judges and Jesus. The Judges and Jesus, and I'm going to continue what Jared began last week. In fact, We'll have, next week will be uh, our third and final sermon on the judges, and it will be our final sermon on the land. And so we're coming, we're really moving through the text, and uh, we find now that the Israelites are in a situation, at least theoretically, to fulfill the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham to give them land and descendants. They have descendants now numbering in the hundreds of thousands, and they have begun under Joshua to occupy the land. And uh, we find ourselves now in the book of Judges. We'll spend most of our time surveying the book of Judges. I had planned to give a sermon just on the experience of Gideon, but I found that to be impossible, and you'll find out why in just a moment. First of all, let's start with the sort of simple analysis of the book of Judges. There are no high points in Judges. There are only less low points, okay? In many ways, this is the lowest point in all of Scripture, at least from a literary perspective. At this point, there's very little anticipation or hope of Messiah. You don't have, as you will later in Israel and Judah's apostasy, the great prophecies of Daniel or of Isaiah. At this point in Israel's history, they have been commissioned to occupy the land. They have done so sort of quasi-ish. And we find ourselves in a book that consists of 21 chapters that are almost impossible to read. Now, I recognize that there are 66 books in the Bible, and all of them are inspired. But if we're ever going to understand the book of Judges, we're going to have to understand a simple point, and that is this. In the Bible, we encounter two different kinds of stories. You can turn those lights down as low as you can, Nate. Um, If you can't turn them down at all, that's fine. We encounter two different kinds of stories in Scripture. We encounter descriptive and prescriptive stories, okay? Descriptive and prescriptive. The first kind, descriptive, are just exactly what it sounds like. These are simply accounts or stories or narratives where the author is describing what happened. The book of Judges is filled with descriptive stories. In fact, there are, as Jared pointed out last week, horrific, terrible, unmentionable kinds of things that happen in the book of Judges, and yet all of this is recorded in the Word of God. But this is an important point. Not every account, not every story, and not every narrative that's recorded in the Word of God is designed to serve as a model or an example for us on how to act. Some of the stories, in fact, all of the stories, with just a couple exceptions in the book of Judges, are simply descriptions of what happened. Not the second kind of story, prescriptions about what should be happening. If you go to a doctor, he or she might give you a prescription. That prescription could be maybe some kind of a medication or it could be an exercise regime or telling you to stay away from certain kinds of foods. 
he or she is not saying, well, you know, I'm going to describe how you have been acting. He will be saying, I'm going to prescribe how you should be acting. And the Bible also has many prescriptive stories. When we hear about Daniel praying even under threat of persecution and being thrown into the lion's den, that not only describes what happened historically, it prescribes a behavioral pattern for us. When we hear about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going bound into the fiery furnace, that's not only describing an historical narrative, that's prescribing for us a way to live, a way to act. It's giving us a moral compass. Okay, the book of Judges is completely vacuous or almost completely vacuous of anything like a moral compass. What we encounter is 21 chapters, story after story after story, narrative after narrative after narrative, passage after passage after passage that are not telling us how to behave. In fact, there is some horrific, heinous, almost unreadable material in the book of Judges. Why is it there then? What purpose in the canon, in Scripture, does the book of Judges serve? Well, it certainly isn't a prescriptive purpose to tell us how to behave and how to act to give us some kind of a moral compass. It's there in a descriptive fashion to let us know what happens when people do not obey and live in accordance with the standards that God has given to them, the moral code. Now, what I want to do is just walk you through briefly the first 12 chapters of the book of Judges, because what we do is we encounter a number of judges. Now, the judges were basically like quasi-rulers in Israel. After the passing of the baton from Moses to Joshua and then Joshua to the judges, we encounter a series of, I guess what you could describe almost as warlords. Not all of them were warlike people, certainly Deborah wasn't, but for the most part we encounter warlords whose job was to physically, uh, militarily deliver, even territorially deliver, Israel from the encroachments of a number of groups of people, but including the Canaanite peoples that had been supposedly extirpated from the land. God had said, utterly destroy, and if not destroy, utterly dispossess. But that dispossession, as it says in Judges chapter 1, was incomplete. It was incomplete, and Jared brought that point out. And so what ends up happening when we get to the book of Judges is we find the children of Israel resting on their laurels complacent and willing, as it were, to coexist with the Canaanites. This was the very thing that God was most concerned about. And so what ends up happening in Judges is we encounter a series of warlords as those nations, some new like the Midianites and others um, new to Canaan, and others like the Canaanites that had been there before that had been driven out, as they encroach increasingly on Israel, these judges would drive them back. And then they would encroach still further, and the judges would drive them back. And the judges that we encounter are, for example, Othniel is the first judge. Fascinatingly, he's Caleb's younger brother of Joshua and Caleb fame. And then the Bible says that the land was given rest for 40 years. Now, I'm just going to point these times out, and you'll see why in a second. Then Jared talked to us about Ehud, and the land had rest for 80 years. Ehud was followed by a guy named Shamgar. We, we know basically nothing about him. There's a single verse in the Bible. Uh, we don't know how many years Sh Shamgar was a judge, followed by Deborah, uh, who Jared spoke about last week. The land had rest for 40 years following uh, her ministry or her uh, position as judge. Then Gideon, that's where we find ourselves today. And Gideon judged Israel for 40 years. After Gideon, we come to the illegitimate son of Gideon, a guy by the name of Abimelech, who actually ends up killing all of Gideon's 70 sons. So I put a question mark up there. You can't really consider this guy a judge. 
what he is is an absolute catastrophe. Um, then we encounter Tola. He judged Israel for 23 years. Jair, or Jer judged Israel for 22 years. Jephthah judged Israel for six years. Three to go here in the early judges. Ibzan judged Israel for seven years. Elon judged Israel for 10. And Abdon finally judged Israel for eight years. This gets us up to the time of Samson, who we're going to talk about next week. Now, this just gives us a sense of scope. And I did this for my own purposes, and I thought I would pass it on to you to give us sort of an idea of time. How much time is transpiring here? And relative to the amount of time, for example, that Israel was under Moses, 40 years, or under Joshua, approximately 40 years, Israel was under the judges for at least the earlier judges. You notice I put here, from Othniel to Abdon is at least 250 years, and as many as 300 plus. And that doesn't even get us out of the experience of the judges. We still then have Samson, and there's a number of judges that follow Samson. So by my calculations, and I checked a few commentaries on this as well, the book of Judges spans like almost half a millennium. I mean, this is a giant period in Israel's history, but it's not only giant in terms of its length, it is an absolutely catastrophic period. And uh, I was assigned today by myself to preach on Gideon, but I found that almost impossible because I have a sermon that I've preached before on Gideon. And I, I wrote it years ago, and I thought, oh, this will be a piece of cake. I'll just preach my sermon on Gideon. The problem was, is that I went back and I actually read the book of Judges through in its context of the flow of the narrative from the writings of Moses into Joshua and then into Judges. And the tenor of my sermon on, on Gideon, which is a feel-good, God can use 300, God doesn't need 32,000, he doesn't need 10,000, God can do it through 300. The problem is is that that feel-good, rah-rah, rally-the-troops sermon does not really fit with the basic tenor of the book of Judges. When you read the thing through, it's like low point, low point, lower point, still lower point, still lower point. And there's only one sort of Mount Kosciuszko in the whole book of Judges. And uh, it is the high point, but it's a fairly modest high point, if I do say so myself. And that's the, that's the book of Gideon or the, the, the story of Gideon. And I just couldn't bring myself this morning to stand up and preach about Mount Kosciuszko as if it was Mount Everest. I hope you'll forgive me for that. What I want to do is show why the book of Judges is the way that it is. And so join me in Judges chapter 2. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about next week. Ostensibly, it's going to be on Samson, but I couldn't find anything good to say about him either, really. So we'll see what happens. All right, Judges chapter 2, join me there. Verse 1 says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. That's a key phrase there, my covenant. That language of my covenant comes straight out of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Notice the language that God says here. Notice the, how emphatic God is. I will never break my covenant with you. Jump down to verse 20. We'll come back to verse 2 in a moment. It says, Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he says, Because this nation has transgressed, here it is again, my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. Those are the only two times where the phrase, my covenant, occurs in all of the book of Judges, and it's with literary intentionality. In other words, 
the author of the book of Judges forgets the phrase, my covenant, because the Israelites forgot God's covenant as well. It shows up in chapter 2 here, two times, never mentioned again. That is the beginning and the end of that phrase, my covenant, in the book of Judges. Remarkably, even though these are the covenant people of God, these are God's people. These are the descendants of Abraham. These, these are God's individuals on earth. This is his city set on a hill. And two times he says, I will never break my covenant with you. And then he says again, they broke my covenant, so I no longer will drive out the nations that were driven out before them by Joshua. And that's it. The covenant is not only literarily forgotten by the author of Judges, it is forgotten and it's a, it's a symbol that the covenant was utterly forgotten by the covenant people. Jump back to verse 2. You will make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You will tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? God asks incredulously. Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they will be like thorns in your side. Their gods will be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of the place Bachem. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Then Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel. They each went to his own inheritance to, pre- to possess the land. Then verses 7 to 10 is the death of Joshua. Jump down to verse 11. In verse 11, we encounter one of three literary devices that we're going to discuss today. And these three literary devices give us an insight into how to understand the book of Judges. We don't know who wrote the book. But the author was very systematic and very intentional in the way that he wrote the book. Look at verse 11. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 12, And they forsook. Here we're introduced to two of the three literary devices we're going to discuss today. The first is that the children of Israel, number one, did evil in the sight of the Lord. The second is this idea of They forsook God to be forsaken. Jump down to the rest of verse 12. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, here comes again. They forsook the Lord and they served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In fact, I think I have that up here. (coughs) This is the passage we've just read. So notice the first of the two literary devices. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the second is forsook. We'll come to the third in just a moment. Here also in verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. Notice that with not all, but with many of the judges that are introduced, when the author of the book of Judges introduces them, he introduces them with this first literary device. Jump down to chapter 3, verse 7. Join me there, chapter 3, verse 7. This is the introduction of the first judge post-Joshua. His name is Othniel, as we've already noted. He's the younger brother of Caleb. Okay, so this is very close lineage, very close connection to a God-fearing family and a God-fearing man. And verse 7 says, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served Baals and the Asherahs. Jump down to verse 12. Now we're going to be introduced to Ehud. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is how we're introduced to Deborah or Deborah. Go to Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Judges 6, 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is how we're introduced to Gideon. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Turn several pages and come with me past the story of Gideon to Judges chapter 10 and verse 6. Judges 10, 6. It says, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroths, the god of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they, watch this, now we're introduced to our second literary element, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years and the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Watch verse 10 carefully. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and serve the Baals. God affirms what they've said, verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. And our last use of the first literary element here is in chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is how we're introduced to Samson, one of the major judges in the book. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So the first literary element here is again and again and again, the, the author of the book of Judges wants it to be crystal clear what's taking place at this, at this time in Israel's history. It was an uninterrupted succession of they did evil in the sight of the Lord, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a literary device, not always, but often when we're introduced to a new judge, we're introduced to Othniel, we're introduced to Ehud, we're introduced to Deborah, we're introduced to Gideon, we're introduced to Samson, we're told that this cycle was unbroken, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the second literary device that comes up here several times is they forsook God, they forsook the Lord, they forsook His covenant and His ways. Now, with this sort of in mind, let's continue to walk our way through and see if we can make any sense of this um, difficult book. Let me introduce you now to the third literary device. Um, two sentences basically summarize the book of Judges. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And look at this one here. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Go take a look at the very last verse of the book of Judges. This is how the author of Judges chose very intentionally, and I might add very stylistically, to bring closure to this dark, dismal, nightmarish period in the history of Israel, a period I remind you that lasted all, as much as half a millennium, hundreds and hundreds of years. Verse 24, so the children of Israel, I'm in chapter 21, verse 24, second to the last verse, so the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. Then it went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And with that, organizationally and stylistically, the author of Judges has just let you know what's going on. 
that this was a time, a massive depression, a massive low point in the history of Israel, and it boiled down to this basic idea that everyone was pursuing their own way, their own path. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. But there's a fascinating tie-in here, and I want to show you this. This was new to me, absolutely new to me. The author of Judges seems to be purposefully drawing on that phrase that every man did what was right in his own eyes, that every woman did what was right in her own eyes. And remarkably, that phrase is directly traceable to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 12. Let's go see what's taking place in Deuteronomy 12. Join me there. Hit reverse in your Bible and move backward to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And notice what we find here. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, if your Bible is anything like mine, you have these subheadings, and in chapter 12, the subheading for verse 1 is a prescribed place of worship. Notice, not a described place, but a prescribed place. God says, this will be the place when you worship me. Now watch, let's just read through some of this. We'll pick it up in verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, your, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days of, uh, that you live on the earth. Watch this, verse 2. This is key. You shall utterly destroy all the places, plural, where the nations that you will dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and in the hills and other, under every green tree. Notice that. On the high mountains and in the hills. Verse 3, you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Verse 5, but you shall seek the place, singular, the place, where the Lord God chooses to put, or chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. There you shall go. Verse 6, There you will take to that place, singular, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and all the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you will eat before the Lord your God, and you will rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 8 is key. Here's the verse. You shall not do at all as we do, as we are doing here today. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Fascinating. That specific phrase in in the Deuteronomic context, the Moses context, to do what is right in your own eyes, watch this, is to worship when you want, where you want, how you want, who you want. Every man doing what's right in his own eyes. It's, it's, not say, it's not just in some general sense that one man wears red and one man wears blue, that one man drives a, you know, a Holden and one man drives a Ford, that one man chooses to live in New South Wales and another man chooses to live in New Hampshire. That's not what it's saying. The specific phrase of every man doing what is right in his own eyes, Moses specifically uses with reference to coming to places, plural, of worship, and finding those places of worship where the Canaanites people and we've already the Canaanite peoples we've already been over this, some of their worship practices involved, but were not limited to the sacrifice of their own children. And God find this, found this so appalling, so repugnant, so disgusting that He said, "When you come into the land, 
Do not inquire. Don't do a little bit of cultural, culturally sensitive research to try to figure out how these people worshipped. It's disgusting. It's abominable. If you find a shrine, if you find an altar, if you find a place of worship, destroy it from the earth. Utterly destroy it. And don't think that there's anything holy or sacred about that particular spot. We have to put ourselves in the mindset to remember. The children of Israel, though descendants of Abraham, and though worshipers of the true God, had been in polytheistic pagan, uh, in a polytheistic pagan situation in Egypt for, for generations. And they had come to regard, you know, idols as possessing some sort of power or holiness. We know this because when Moses finally led the children of Israel out of Egypt, it was basically showing that the God of Israel was stronger than the other gods. Hey, your gods can do this, the God of Israel can do this. Your gods can do this, the God of Israel can do this. We, we remember that Moses, when he made that first sort of introduction of himself to, to Pharaoh and to his magicians, Moses threw his serpent down, and it became a, or his rod down, rather, and it became a serpent. Well, then the magicians, they did a similar kind of thing. They threw their rod down, and it became a serpent. But then, then Moses' serpent ate the other serpent. Okay, this is very primitive and, and contextual thinking. My God is tougher than your God. My God beat your God, etc. So, so God says, when you come into this land, even though these are defeated gods, do not regard them as possessing any power. When you find their places of worship, when you find their shrines, don't regard them as possessing any holiness, any sanctity, anything that would be of any value to you. Absolutely, totally, completely eviscerate them. Destroy them. I don't want there to be any sign left that a people inhabited this land that committed those atrocious acts of worship that they did in the high places. But it gets even more interesting. God not only says destroy those things, he further, and this never dawned on me until this week, he further insulated and safeguarded Israel from ever falling into this particular kind of idolatry because he said, when you worship me, there will be a single place. You will travel on a, on a on a, a pilgrimage system with the three spring feasts and the free, three fall feasts, you will travel on those pilgrimage feasts and you will come to the appropriate place. And fascinatingly, the appropriate place to worship Jehovah was never on a mountain. It was always on the valley floor, right? Down at the bottom. Now, there could be times later when it became appropriate, such as in the time of Elijah, but, but on the Sinai desert floor, God set up his sanctuary. You come and worship me, not in the high places, not in the hills. Nope. Destroy all of them and come here. Moses says in Deuteronomy 12, hey, it's not going to be like this. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes, worshiping what he wants, how he wants, when he wants, who he wants. Now look at this. Jump down to verse 11. We're also in Deuteronomy, we're still in Deuteronomy 12. Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name. Verse 13, take heed to yourselves that you do not offer burnt offerings in every place that you see. Verse 14, but in the place the Lord chooses. Verse 26, only the holy things which you have taken, your vowed offerings which you shall take, and go to the place, singular, which the Lord chooses. Jump down to verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go in to dispossess, you will displace them and you will dwell in their land. Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, that you do not inquire after their gods and say, hey, how did these nations serve their God? I'm going to do the same. 
You will not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination to the Lord that he hates, such as the offering of their children. They have done to their gods. They even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add or take away from it. So this is fascinating. And this was a connection I had never made before. When we come to Judges, and we summarize much of Judges in that phrase that occurs not just at the last verse, but it occurs in other places. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That is a very specific Deuteronomic reference to the fact that people were not coming to the central, federalized location of God's sanctuary to worship. Oh, they were just worshiping any old willy-nilly place that they wanted, and the places somehow in some terrible magnetic way drew them in to inquire about the nature of the peoples and their worship. And before you knew it, they were soon mingling the worship of the true God with the Canaanite ways. And this is the backdrop for the book of Judges. Again and again and again. They enter into covenants and treaties with the Canaanites, and then they enter into a amalgamated worship combining elements of Jehovah worship with this Canaanitish thing. It's an absolutely catastrophic compromise, and God keeps raising up these judges. But as we'll see here, a human judge, an external judge, could never be a solution to the central problem that was facing Israel in the time of the judges. Now go back with me to Judges chapter 6. This will be the one sort of word that I give to Gideon here. And I do want to say that Gideon is the Mount Kosciuszko of the book of Judges. It's the high point. It's a low high point, but it's the high point. Because here we have a little glimmer of the fact that if the children of Israel had rallied around God's plan, if the children of Israel had rallied around God's deliverance, that he could, as he had done with Jericho, with some trumpets, he could bring deliverance in a most unusual way, routing an army that numbered, I think it's 120,000 with 300 men. And God doesn't do it with sword for sword and blade for blade and power for power. One of the things that I had meant to preach on when I talked about genocide a few Sabbaths ago was that God had repeatedly said, I will send hornets before you to drive the inhabitants of the land of Canaan out. I will send hornets. I will send hornets. I will send hornets. And there's debate among the scholars as to what that means. Apparently, being driven by hornets was, a, was an idiom in those times that meant to be totally terrified and confused. I myself have two times in my life stumbled on a bee's nest and another time on a wasp's nest. And when you are, if you've been surrounded by bees and wasps and they are all around you, you don't know where to flee. You, just, you basically just freak out and you run and you look for water. Or, I mean, it's, to be chased by bees, to be chased by wasps or hornets is a great idiom for total fear and confusion. Now, when you go read the book of Joshua, it's interesting. Because when, the, the, when Joshua and, his, and, his, uh, uh, and, and the, the soldiers of Israel, the armies of Israel would come, they would meet various people that were in Canaan, and the people would say things like, the fear of the Lord caused, the fear of you and of your God melted our hearts. We, we, our hearts melted with fear before you, and we see most of Canaan fleeing, not from literal hornets, but, but in this idiomatic expression, fleeing in fear, fleeing in confusion, well, we see a glimmer of that with Gideon, right? Karen did a great job there of reminding us that they held the torches and they broke the jars and they blew the trumpets and 300 men routed more than 100,000. How? By God sending hornets. 
Not literal hornets, but sending the spirit of confusion and of fear into the camp, and they basically slaughtered themselves. That was God's plan. God's plan was not to raise up a generation of warlords that would be better with their swords than the Canaanites, that would be better with their spears, that would be like the Bruce Lees of the Most High. God's plan was that they would go forward in faith, and just as the Red Sea parted in front of them, just as the Jordan parted in front of them, so too the Canaanites would part in front of them. It didn't mean that they wouldn't occasionally have to resort to violence or to a sword, but God wasn't raising up a generation of warlords. He just wanted people that believed in him to go forward and do things like march around cities, you know, seven times, and then God takes care of the dirty business. Here, he basically says, okay, get 300 men, put 100 there, 100 there, 100 there, break your jars, hold your torches up, yell at the top of your lungs the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and the people kill themselves. Hornets, the spirit of fear and confusion comes into them. That's the way that God planned to do business, to allow the violence of that land, the warlord nature of that land to basically reverberate back on itself. So in that sense, and in that sense only, Gideon is a, is a little high point in the book of Judges, a book that has very few high points. But when the angel of the Lord shows up and starts talking to Gideon, it's a fascinating interaction, and we'll just read a couple verses from it. Look at verse 11 of Judges 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now Gideon doesn't feel like a mighty man of valor, but God speaks faith. God speaks belief into Gideon's life. And that's the sermon I was going to preach, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord! If the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of the great miracles? Man, this sounds like a very modern protest. You hear this today. Where are the great miracles? This is Gideon saying, where are the great miracles? You know, we want to see the Red Sea depart. We want to see the Jordan stand up in a heap, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has, watch this, but now the Lord has, what does your Bible say? forsaken us. Ah, this is this, this is this key literary idea in the, book of, in the book of Judges. Gideon has the audacity, Gideon has the temerity to suggest that in fact God has forsaken his covenant people, that God has left his covenant people to die in the wilderness and to be, to be taken utterly captive by the marauding hordes of the Canaanites. God has forsaken us and he has delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And then what unfolds from there is the, you know, relative high point of the book of Judges, which is the story of Gideon. But listen to what Gideon is saying. He's speaking on behalf of all of Israel when he says this. God has forsaken us. God has left us alone. And my question here is, who forsook who? Who, who abandoned who? Who was forsaken by who? We just read there in Judges chapter 2 that God said in the most emphatic language, it's, it's the last time that my covenant occurs, that phrase, my covenant occurs, I will never, ever break my covenant with you. And then the phrase never occurs again. It's just crickets, crickets. Because what we see in the rest of the book of Judges is broken covenant, broken covenant, broken covenant. Broken in what sense? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. They worshiped where they wanted, who they wanted, how they wanted, with, with, with their own. They, they did not remember the, Deuter the Deuteronomic promise to come to the place, to the sanctuary. Why? 
Well, I could wax eloquent about this, but the short version is this. The sanctuary teaches the gospel. The sanctuary teaches the central truth that we've already discussed in here at length, that you don't bring a sacrifice to appease God. God brings a sacrifice to make a way for you to approach Him. You don't bring a sacrifice to assuage an angry deity. God provides the sacrifice. That was the words of Abraham on top of Mount Moriah, Jehovah Jireh. God will provide a lamb himself. Can the church say amen? So what you have, what you have down in the, in, the, in the valley floor is the gospel. That's the gospel down in the valley floor where the truth that, that it's, not, it's not you that comes to God by your strength and by your covenant keeping and by your fidelity. It's God that provides a lamb. It's God that covers a multitude of sins. The gospel is down in the valley floor, but up in these high places, there were other places of worship. But these were not the God of Scripture. This was not Jehovah. These were gods that required increasingly austere and increasingly demanding sacrifices right up to and, and, and including the sacrifice of one's own son. These are disgusting, repugnant, perverse gods of the imagination of the peoples. These are demons, the Bible says. And the gospel was down there, but the demons were in the high hills, which is why. Come, come let me show you something very interesting. Come with me to a psalm that is regularly sung in praise songs, and I am persuaded is sung wrong every time. Come to Psalm 121. Psalm 121. We have this psalm where David seemingly says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. You might, you might have heard that before. Maybe you've sung a praise song, I will lift my eyes. I've heard about three or four variations of this idea that, that I will lift my eyes to the hills. But you know what's very interesting? David is not saying that he lifts his eyes to the hills. He's actually not even making a statement at all. He's asking a question. Look at Psalm 121, verse 1. My version says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. And then the question, from where does my help come? Here's what David is saying. Will I lift my eyes to the hills? Where does my help come from? You see what he's saying? He's like, do you think that my deliverance comes from the high places? My deliverance doesn't come from the high places in those mountain shrines and in those mountain places of worship where all of the Canaanites and the Midianites and the apostate Israelites went to worship. Will I lift my eyes to the hills? He says, where does my help come from? And then he says, no, 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 no. I don't lift my eyes to the hills. My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. Can the church say amen? Look at this. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will never fall asleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun won't strike you by day nor the moon by night. This is very interesting because in these primitive pagan societies, they believed that the moon and the suns were gods, right? That they were the physical manifestations of these angry gods. And, and David here is saying, I'm not afraid of the moon. I'm not afraid of the sun. My God made the moon. My God made the sun. My God made all of these places. Will I lift my eyes to the hills? Pfft, you've got to be kidding. My help comes from the Lord that made the hills. You see, David knew, which is why he was so passionate about building. What did David, when he came to the end of his life, what was he super passionate about building? He wanted to build the place. The place. 
where the true God and the true gospel and the great good news about who and what God is and who and what we are, where that could be preached. And God said, I'm sorry, I can't let you build that. You're a man of blood, but you can gather the materials. Your son can build it. David's like, you think I'm going to climb to the top of that mountain and worship? This is not going to be every man doing what's right in his own eyes. I want to worship the right God in the right way, in the right place. Who forsook who? Gideon says, oh, we've been forsaken. You were never forsaken. We encounter this phrase, God gave them up in the book of Romans. We've already noted, God didn't give them up full stop. God gave them up to. And what did God give Israel up to? And this is simple and it's tragic. He gave them up to themselves. He gave them over to the consequences of their own choices and their own decisions. In, in short, God honored their choice to break covenant. God never gives us up. But he does give us up to the consequences of the choices that we insist on making. Hebrews 13 verse 5, quoting from Deuteronomy and from Joshua, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. And we just read that in in Judges 2. I will never break my covenant with you. I would sooner die. And of course, that's the great good news of the covenant, that God so obligated himself to covenantal faithfulness that he came as a man, and died rather than break covenant with us. You see, friends, there are so many takeaways from the book of Judges, but the chiefest of which has to be, you cannot make peace with the Canaanites in your life. We can't make peace with the things that kill Jesus. We can't make peace with sin. You know, little sins, big sins, medium-sized sins, it's irrelevant. The things that, that kill Jesus are not things that Christians can be making peace with. Right? And, and I remind you that, that the Israelites did, for the most part, drive the Canaanites out of the land, but they left just a few little bits and pieces, seemingly harmless, seemingly innocuous, no problem. We can coexist with the small things that the Canaanites have in the land. We can coexist with these things. Friends, I want to tell you, most of you in this room are not adulterers. I'd love to think that all of you are not adulterers. Right? Most of you in this room are not murderers. I'd like to think that all of you in this room are not murderers. Most of us in this room, when it comes to the the external manifestations of breaking God's covenant, breaking God's promises, breaking God's law, most of us have cleared the land, right? By the grace of God, we've cleared the land of these things. But, But for a terrifying number of us, and I put myself in this list, there are still little bits, little artifacts of Canaanitish heritage Still little high places in my life. Yeah, the big ones are gone, but it's as if I've convinced myself that I can peacefully coexist with a certain level of Canaanite presence. And the book of Judges stands as a giant warning and says, you can't make peace with the things that God hates. When you've wandered from God, it often feels like he has left you. That's how Gideon felt. God has left us. And I've met many a person who said, where did God go? Where was God when this happened? Where was God? Where was God? Where was God? And the remarkable thing is, is that in a, in a, in a psychological phenomenon that can only be described as projection, we project God as having left when in reality we're the ones that have left. Now, God is sensitive to the psychological weaknesses in the human experience, and God knows that he has never left, he has never forsaken, and that he has never broken covenant. And he knows that we sometimes feel that way. But I want you just to know today, God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has not left you. Your life might feel like the book of Judges, 
an absolute wasteland of unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness followed by unfaithfulness followed by unfaithfulness followed by unfaithfulness followed by broken promise after broken promise after broken promise after broken promise after broken promise. What is this ridiculous book doing in the Bible? It's there to let us know that even though there was serial unfaithfulness and serial promise breaking and serial rebellion, God was always there to raise up another judge, to raise up another deliverer, to give them another chance because he has not forsaken his people and he hasn't forsaken you. Look at this from Ellen White. Desire of Ages, the elder brother of our race, Jesus Christ, is by the eternal throne. Jesus looks upon every soul who is turning his face towards him as the Savior. He knows by experience what are the weaknesses of humanity, and hallelujah for that. He knows what are our wants. He knows where lies the strength of our temptation. And man, those temptations can be so strong, they seem impossible to resist. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He is watching over you, trembling child of God. Are you tempted? He will deliver. He's the true judge, capital J. Are you weak? He will strengthen. Are you ignorant? He will enlighten. Are you wounded? He will heal. Come to me is his invitation. Whatever your anxieties and trials, I love this, spread out your case before the Lord and it's a miserable case. Your life might look like your own autobiographical version of the book of Judges. Just spread it out before him in all of its ugliness, in all of its perversity, in all of its rebellion. Just put it out there. If God is willing to put the book of Judges in the Bible and call it the Word of God, you can spread your case out before Jesus. With all of its rebellion, with all of its perversity, with all of its unfaithfulness, with all of its Sabbath breaking, with all of its tithe retention, with all of its unfaithfulness, just spread it out. With all of its sexual perversity, just spread your case out before Jesus. He knows it anyway. Just spread it out. Watch what happens when you spread out your case. Your spirit will be braced for endurance the way will be open for you to, I love this word, disentangle yourself from embarrassment and difficulty. And dare I say that if you spread your case out before me, you'd be embarrassed. And if I spread my case out before you, I would be embarrassed. But God doesn't ask us to spread our case out before one another. Can the church say amen? Because we'd never be able to look at one another the same again. We would, we'd never be able to face one another and believe, or, or maybe we would, because maybe we would see that we are all fragile and broken and in need. God doesn't say spread your filth out to one another. He says you spread your case out. You give me your book of judges and I will make a way for you to disentangle yourself from that embarrassment that you call your life, from that difficulty in which you have found yourself, from that unfaithfulness and rebellion. Can the church say amen? The weaker and more helpless you know yourself to be. Are there any weak and helpless people here today? Come on now. A few of you out there. The weak Weaker and helpless you know yourself to be, the stronger you will be in his strength. The heavier your burdens, the more blessed the rest. And I love this, the rest. In casting them upon the burden bearer, the rest that Christ offers depends upon conditions. But these conditions are plainly specified. They are just, uh, they are those with which we all can comply. He tells us uh, just how his rest is to be found. Rest, rest, rest. That's what they were supposed to get in the land all along, but they didn't get rest. They got conflict, and they got shame, and they got embarrassment. And most of us in this room, most of us in this room, I'm sad to say, I, 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 I am persuaded, because I put myself in this list, have not entered fully into the rest that God has carved out for us. 
We've come into the land, but we're, we're happy to cohabitate with some of those Canaanitish things. And so we have a, a degree of restfulness. We have a modicum of restfulness, but we have not entered, many of us, sadly, into the full rest of opening our case before Jesus and saying, I am broken, I need healing, I am wounded, I need restoration, I am sinful, I need forgiveness, spreading our case out before Jesus. You cannot make peace with the Canaanites in your life. Human judges could not give them rest from the real battle. That's why the book of Judges is such a catastrophe. Ehud couldn't do it. Othniel couldn't do it. Deborah couldn't do it. Gideon couldn't do it. Why not? Because the real battle, the battle that was waging in the human heart, only Jesus can give us this rest. They could give temporary deliverance from an encroaching horizontal danger. But the real problem with the book of Judges is that people's hearts were following and doing what every man and what every woman thought was right in their own eyes, worshiping how they want, who they want, when they want, where they want, cohabitating with the Canaanites and thinking that you're going to find true rest and true peace. There is none. Only Jesus can deliver us from the Canaanites in the heart. The judges were temporary solutions to a permanent problem, and that's how I would summarize the whole book. The book of Judges is the catastrophe that it is. It is the blight and the dark spot in Scripture that it is because it's a temporary solution, namely a military deliverance, a territorial deliverance, a strength-based deliverance to a permanent problem. And the permanent problem is the wayward human heart that needs what's on the valley floor. And what's on the valley floor is the gospel. You see, down in the true sanctuary with the true God and the true Lamb and the true Shekinah and the shedding of blood for the remission of sins, the gospel's down there. That's, that's not where you win yourself into the favor of a God that can never be pleased. That's where God has wooed himself into your favor by his condescension, by his sacrifice, and by his grace. You see, the gospel's down there. They had to come down to the gospel. Man, there's so much in this. God even said, when you build my altar, don't put steps up to my altar. You put my altar on the floor. God didn't want there to be any notion that you somehow ascended to or climbed up to him. The pagans worshipped that way. And even now, you look, at, you look at many of the pagan shrines that we have, the pyramids or Machu Picchu. It's, it's simplistic pagan thinking to think, I will climb the mountain and be closer. I will ascend and be more holy. And God said, no, 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 no. The sacrifice is not you ascending or becoming worthy of something. The sacrifice of Jesus is God condescending to come to the lowest of the low. God condescending to come to the book of Judges that is your life. He said, you put my altar and you put my sanctuary, you put it on the floor. Don't put steps up to it. <clears throat> Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me, Jesus said. The guarantee that you will never be forsaken is that Jesus was forsaken. And that's the gospel. The guarantee that you will never, ever, 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 ever be forsaken by God is that Jesus was forsaken. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus hung on the cross, truly forsaken, not artificially or imaginatively forsaken, as Gideon thought. Oh, why are we forsaken? No, 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 no. The guarantee that you will never be forsaken or forgotten by your lover, by your redeemer, by your creator, and by your savior is that Jesus was forsaken, genuinely, truly, when he cried out in agony and in despair, why have you left me, God? 
The book of Judges is not a God-forsaken book. It's a God-has-been-forsaken book. And my appeal to you is this, final slide. Don't let your life be a God-has-been-forsaken life. Your life deserves a better story than the book of Judges. The book of Judges is covenant-breaking, covenant unfaithfulness, every man doing what's right in his own eyes, continual sense of evil and of pursuing evil. And my appeal to you, your life deserves better than cohabitation with the Canaanites. Your life deserves better than serving the gods of shame and of guilt that will never be appeased no matter what you do. Your life belongs in the true sanctuary with the true God and the true Savior, Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we deserve better than the book of Judges, and that's why the book is there. You've created us for something bigger, something better, something brighter. And forgive us, Father, for our covenantal unfaithfulness. Forgive us, Father, where we have worshipped in our own ways and worshipped our own things, whether money or sport or leisure or sex or prestige. Father, we've worshipped in our own ways, and some of us have thought insanely that we could make peace with the Canaanites, those little vestiges of Canaanitish heritage still there. But Father, the prayer of my heart is that there would just be one place of worship in our heart and in our mind, and that would be the true sanctuary of the true God and the true Lamb who gave himself that we might be saved and preserved. Father, we're not looking to our faithfulness. We are leaning heavily and exclusively on your faithfulness. You are the great Jehovah Jireh. You are the provider of the sacrifice. You are the giver of the great offering. And Christ as God is the great offering. And so, Father, we come to you. We spread our case out before you. And Lord, I want to pray that, that my church here, that your church would take time this week to spread their case out before you. To, to just put it all out there, Father, to, to give you their book of judges, to give you their book of unfaithfulness, to give you their book of depression and blackness and faithlessness and rebellion. Father, to spread that case out before you so that we might be honest with ourselves and we might be honest with you. And then we will go away with the assurance that in our weakness, you make us strong. That in our woundedness, you heal us. That in our rebellion, you give us a faithful spirit. And that in our death, you give us life in Christ. In whose name we pray, the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Happy Sabbath. Great to be back.